26, Psalm 69. This is in part a, um, a cry of distress. And uh, we're reading it because we are uh, considering in the sermon more about assurance of salvation. And in that cry of distress, sometimes uh, in the Psalms you find this, that it uh, sounds as if the, the psalmist has uh, lost sight of his assurance. But if you read on in these Psalms, you find that uh, the psalmists soon discover it again. God gives them that. So we read the beginning and the end of that psalm to see uh, how that works out in Psalm 69, verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. And then if you go towards the end of the psalm to verse 34, and note the contrast, let heaven and earth praise him the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. And the descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. So quite a strong contrast there as you move through that psalm from the cry of a man suffering from great affliction through to that Uh, praise and joy even at the end of it. Would you then turn please to 2 Peter, chapter 1. I'll read the first 11 verses. And the text for the sermon is verses 10 and 11. And then I'll read from the Westminster Confession. To Peter 1, from verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now our text, next two verses. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, if you look in your bulletin, you should find a copy of the Westminster Confession, chapter 18, and articles 3 and 4, the remaining two articles in this chapter on assurance. Article 3. This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. Yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of ordinary means, attain thereunto. And therefore it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So, so far is it from inclining men to looseness. And then Article 4. True believers may have, this, the, sorry, have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished and intermitted, as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness." And to have no light. Yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you teach us your ways by the operation of your word and spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would do so again today. The way you give us to walk is one that involves trust as well as obedience. And Father, as we walk this way, will you increase our assurance that this is indeed the right path. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, our church and our members often give aid to needy churches overseas. When we're in the process of doing that and raising money for that aid, I generally try to keep the overseas people uh, involved in it 
informed of the process, how long it's likely to take, how much money is being raised, when and how the money will be transferred. Despite that information, I often receive emails and sometimes almost daily receive emails saying, is it there yet? Is the money sent yet? Well, I understand that these, uh, in these situations there's often a considerable sense of desperation involved, so I can understand that uh, people do that, that they want to um, keep uh, pressing the matter. But the reason I mention this is to illustrate the difference between objective and subjective assurance. That's something we've looked at before. I've used the terminology a few times over the years. Uh, but it is an important distinction between objective and subjective assurance. So to use this as an illustration, I try to give objective assurance based on the facts as I know them at this end, but the people at the other end who can't actually see what's going on here, they often struggle to lay hold of that assurance subjectively in themselves. The giving of aid may not be in any doubt from our end, but the confidence at the other end may waver and even give way to an element of doubt. That difference between objective and subjective assurance is important to keep in mind both with our text and also with this chapter in the Westminster Confession. Two points as we look at this text. First of all, making certain, and secondly, entering the kingdom. Making certain and entering the kingdom. In the first place, the Apostle Peter commands the readers to be all the more diligent to make certain about his, that is God's calling and choosing you, or his calling and election. And I want to make this point, first of all, that uh, striving for that subjective assurance, assurance, what some also call uh, personal assurance, being assured yourself in your own heart, striving for that is not something that is optional. It's something that is commanded it's something that needs to be worked on diligently and we are called to do so. And very often what happens when Christian people feel doubtful about their standing before God, either because they look at their own life, look at their own sins and say, I'm just a hopeless case. There's no way I could be a true Christian when I act the way that I do. Or those who start to wonder, well, is there really a God working in my life at all? When Christians have those kind of doubts... Uh, sometimes they just sit there wringing their hands and feeling miserable about it without actually taking up a command like this and diligently striving to seek God's help to do something about it. But that's precisely what we're commanded to do here. This verse is, of course, rather similar to Philippians 2 verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's some similarities there between these two verses. Both of those passages have often been misused by Arminians on the view that God has only supplied some kind of hypothetical salvation to you, some kind of maybe a provisional 
or partial salvation and there's something that you need to do in order to make what God has done more certain. There's something that you need to do to secure your own salvation by your own free will, whether that's by a free will exercise of faith or by using your free will to do good works or something of that kind. So that then you can say, now I know I'm saved because of what I've done in addition to what God has done and by I can have assurance because of that. Uh, one commentator, uh, Gordon Clark, uh, even quotes a very extreme example of this uh, a tract on this particular passage that was put this way, God votes for us, the devil votes against us, and you and I have to break the tie by voting for ourselves. It's a very extreme Arminian way of putting it. But as you know, the scripture teaches us again and again that both salvation and the faith by which we lay hold of it are free gifts that come from the initiative of God and they are sovereign acts, acts of sovereign grace on his part. And uh, there is no tie for us to break. Not when you're dealing with a sovereign God and sovereign grace. There is no tie that man has to break. Moreover, I want to stress this point that there is nothing that God does. There is not a single thing that God does that can be made more certain by anything that you or I do. Think of God's creation of the world. His creation of the world is not some shaky thing which man needs now to work on to somehow stabilise. Or his providence. God's providential ruling of the universe is not some shaky thing that needs us to help him maintain his rule over this world or else it's not going to work properly, that we somehow need to prop up his government. And likewise with his salvation. His salvation of the elect is not for one split second a shaky affair. It is never in doubt. It never needs our faith or our good works in order to make it stand. The objective guarantee that you have based on the aid that God has gathered, that he has assembled and promised, that is not in the slightest doubt. God's promises, and there are hundreds of them throughout the scripture, God's promises are not in any doubt whatsoever. They're absolutely 100% reliable. Take, for example... For those whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified, from Romans 8 verse 30. We cannot make that predestination, or that calling, or that justification, or that glorification, one bit more certain in, in itself by anything that we do or think. What then is Peter talking about? Well, he is talking about subjective assurance. The laying hold of these objective assurances and promises and then living a life that is based on that foundation, living out of those promises. He is talking about us trusting that the aid really has been assembled and promised and sent and it will arrive at the, at the, the, the uh, appropriate time 
as promised, at the right time, using there that illustration again of the aid that we gather for churches overseas, trusting that that will happen. In fact, the original language has uh, different forms of uh, verbs to indicate whether the subject of the verb is the one doing the action of the verb or the subject is the one that has the action of the verb done to them or whether the subject of the verb is doing the action to himself. Here, the verb is make certain. And the form of it that is used implies making certain for ourselves. We're not making it more certain for God. We're making it more certain for ourselves. The certainty of God's promises of Christ's work for us is not in doubt. But we need to be diligent to encourage personal assurance in ourselves. And the reason for that is because we're very weak and we often doubt, and we often lose sight of the promises of God and the teachings of God's word and fail to live out of them. Indeed, the apostle writes here about some who had become blind, short-sighted, and forgotten the purification that God gives to his people. They had forgotten those things, some of his readers, uh, which is a very serious problem. And therefore, the apostle commands, don't be like that. Don't be like those who are blind and short-sighted and forgetting things that they should know. On the contrary, be diligent. Be all the more diligent, in fact, to do that which strengthens and encourages personal assurance by God's grace. So how do we do that? How do we encourage and strengthen personal assurance? We do that by cooperating with the Holy Spirit, uh, it's not something that we can do by ourselves, but it is something that we do by cooperating with God's Spirit. And there are some particular things. We've talked about them before. Uh, last time, I think we considered some of these things. First and foremost, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, looking to his work on the cross, uh, looking to the work of the Holy Spirit, who is the one who calls us to that life of faith, uh, looking to the electing work of the Father, looking to the work of the triune God, clinging to him and to the promises that we have concerning him and his works as we find those things in Scripture. That is the objective assurance. Uh, basically, it comes down to saturating ourselves with that objective assurance and clinging to it even if at times we feel that as far as we're concerned from our side, things are falling to pieces. But then, as I mentioned last time, you also have this second level of help that is given by cooperating with the Holy Spirit in, uh, as he supplies us with the virtues that are mentioned in verses 5 to 7 and striving with his help to grow in those things. Because these qualities in verses 5 to 7 are evidences that you truly do know the Lord Jesus Christ, whose work is absolutely certain. It's not that what you do in itself makes things certain, but it shows that the God who is sure and certain about these things is indeed at work in you. And if you don't display these virtues, then that may, well, if they're not displayed at all, it's an indication 
you don't truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're not entitled to claim these promises in the first place. Philippians 2 verse 12, essentially the same. Your work doesn't help earn salvation, but it does outwork salvation. It outworks the free and certain gift of salvation, which outworking encourages us to see God at work in our lives, to see how he's changing our lives, because that's what he does for all his people. He changes our lives. Note how the Westminster in in these two articles builds this theology. Article 3 indicates that infallible assurance, it actually indicates that infallible assurance belongs to the essence of faith. Though it's worded this way that it does not so belong, it does not belong in such a way that you can't lose sight of it, but uh, the implication there is that infallible assurance does actually belong to the essence of faith. In other words, the objective assurance of the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as promised infallibly in God's word, that is essential for faith. It's of the essence of it. And when God gives you the gift of faith, he enables you to lay hold of those promises and to believe his word. Heidelberg, Lord's Day 7, question 21, says the same thing essentially. True faith is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Now, to be fair, probably the majority of Presbyterians these days would understand the Westminster as teaching that uh, assurance is not of the essence of faith. They uh, focus on the first part of it, does not so belong as if it stops there. But in fact, uh, what it's saying is that it doesn't belong in such a way that you can't lose sight of it. Article 3 then goes on to say that this doesn't stop us, this deep-rooted assurance, this infallible assurance that's of the essence of faith, it doesn't stop us from having difficulties in partaking of it. That's the subjective side of things. And that's why we need to be diligent to use the means of grace to make our calling and election sure to ourselves subjectively and by also displaying the proper fruits of assurance as mentioned in verses 5 to 7 in our text. Article 4 goes on to give the opposite side of the coin that subjective assurance can be shaken. It can be diminished or interrupted by negligence. Negligence in using and exercising these things, the means of grace, or if we give ourselves over to sin. Because either way, whether you, if you give yourself over to sin or if you neglect the means of grace, either way, it tends to interfere with our focusing on the only absolute assurance we have, the objective assurance that comes from God's word. Your subjective assurance isn't going to be helped at all if you focus on other things, sinful things, or if you neglect to focus on the things of God's word. Use the means of grace. Think again of those people overseas. They're worried that the money's not coming through, that it's not going to arrive in time or possibly arrive at all. 
So they send me emails and I send them back reassurances. If they choose not to look at those reassurances, if they choose not to read those emails, or if they choose to read them and disbelieve them, then that's not going to help them, that's not going to reassure them. If in addition to that, to ignoring the means of grace, if you start to knock the fruits of godliness off your tree and to replace them instead with evil fruits, then when you look at yourself, when you look at the fruits of your life, you are not going to be seeing the fruits of assurance, you're going to be seeing the fruits of something else. So again, that's not going to help. Your secondary evidence can also uh, diminish that uh, sense of assurance, that living out of that uh, gift of assurance. And perhaps you may, you may have experienced that for yourself at times. You may have experienced that and just how damaging that can be if you've ever gone through a time of backsliding and maybe you start to question yourself more. You see a lot of sin in your life, so you start to ask questions. What if I'm not really a Christian? And then maybe you move from that to saying, well, if I can't see God at work in my life, then maybe I should start wondering whether there's any God at all. That's a common pathway that people go down. When the whole problem is not the existence of God, there's no doubt about that, and it's not the lack of his help both to, uh, to work in your life and change you and also to give you these assurances if you are a true Christian, the problem is your negligence, your negligence of the means of grace, your refus- refusal to repent of your sin. But part of our sinfulness is that it's always easier for us to blame someone else other than ourselves for our own failure. And sometimes that comes down to blaming God rather than laying the blame where it belongs, which is at ourselves. Well, I've mentioned the importance of focusing on God's promises a number of times, both uh, today and also previously. I'd like you to note that verses 10 and 11 actually supply more of these promises. In a passage that is calling on us to do the things that will strengthen our subject of assurance, it also, in the same breath, supplies us with further objective assurance. As long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. That is an objective promise. And also this one. In this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. That is another objective promise, another certain promise. A second and final point, entering the kingdom. So the first promise, you will never stumble. This is not a promise that you will never sin. It is not a promise that you will never stumble in some fashion, uh, in the sense that you, you do commit some sin, You fall away from what you should at that point. You could call that stumbling, but that's not what the scripture is talking about here. The language here is talking about someone who stumbles finally and completely. And so the apostle is giving us a promise, God is giving us a promise, that you will never stumble finally so as to be excluded from Christ's kingdom if 
you practice these things, these virtues of verses 5 to 7. The practice, the word practice means that you keep on doing them. It doesn't mean you're going to do them perfectly. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be interruptions and decreases in that faithfulness at times. But it means that there is something regular, habitual and ongoing about your displaying of these virtues. This also doesn't mean that you will earn or uh, come with some kind of guarantee of what God is going to do to you in the strength of your own actions and your own virtues. You're not earning an entrance to Christ's kingdom by acting with moral excellence and self-control and godliness and brotherly kindness and so forth. If salvation were earned by our behaviour, there would be no ground for assurance at all. Rather, what we are dealing with here is this teaching that ongoing sanctification is evidence that Christ and his spirit are at work in your life. And if Christ is at work in your life, you have an absolute guarantee that he will continue that work. He will not uh, start some work and then let it drop away, the work of salvation. He will preserve you so that you never finally fall away. In fact, the Westminster says in Article 4 here that when a true Christian backslides, he will never utterly be utterly destitute of the seed of God, the life of faith, the love of Christ and his brethren, sincerity of heart and awareness of his duty. Which things God will revive in due time in those who have been called and saved having been been elected from eternity and who therefore have, at least in some measure, these virtues at work in their lives, the ones listed in verses 5 to 7. Again, the objective assurance is the Lord and his work. The subjective assurance can vary, but it will eventually be restored even when it is severely assailed. The second promise of entrance is entrance into Christ's kingdom at the end. And we are told here that this entrance is abundantly or richly supplied to all who have been called, elected and saved. Another absolute promise. And the Lord Jesus Christ can, uh, he can do this, he can guarantee this, and he does do these things precisely because he is Lord and Saviour, sovereign Lord and merciful Saviour, and therefore he is able to supply things to us abundantly in such a way that we will enter his kingdom. The word supply is a word that comes, uh, it, it, it literally means uh, to lead a chorus. And it came to mean uh, to lead a chorus, but also to pay all the expenses of your chorus group for their performances and so on. And in fact, the, the word that's used here in this text is a strengthened form of that idea so that it means not simply to pay for the chorus group and their performances, but it means to pay fully and abundantly for it. And then as if we were in any doubt, despite the use of that strengthened form of the word, the word richly or abundantly is added on top of that. So it's doubled up this idea of abundantly 
supplying fully and abundantly everything that is needed for this chorus group, the church, for this chorus group to get up on that stage at the end and perform in the sense that we, we sing into eternity our praises to God together. That's our chorus in the next life. That's what the chorus group will be doing. To put it another way, the Lord is not a stingy saviour, but he is one whose grace and whose merits are infinitely rich and abundant so that he's not looking for excuses to pull you out of the chorus group before the final act. On the contrary, he has paid for a grand entrance by all of his people and he wants us all to be there and all true believers, all who are truly elected and called, will be there. And by the same token, because he is not a stingy saviour, he is not trying to give you more and more reasons to question your sonship, to question your salvation. On the contrary, he constantly gives promises and assurances and reassurances and re-reassurances in order to help you to bring that subjective assurance into line with the objective assurance, with the promises of God. Just have a look at the things that we find in our text to show how that's so. The words of assurance and reassurance. He chose you. He called you. You will never stumble. You will finally enter. And it will be a grand entrance because he supplies all you need richly, abundantly and fully. Now if you want to hinder yourself in accepting that, if you want to shoot yourself in the foot, that's not hard to do. Just ignore the Lord Jesus Christ. Ignore his promises. Ignore the means of grace. Ignore your duty of obedience and your duty of service. But if you want to be helped rather than hindered, well then don't uh, sit around wringing your hands and uh, wallowing in the misery of your lack of assurance. If you want to be helped, then be diligent to use the very things that God has given you to help. The means of grace, looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, the promises of God, uh, striving to cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification, and just dwell on passages like this one. Passages in Scripture that are filled with these absolute assurances. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you move us to do the things that will strengthen our assurance of salvation rather than to undermine it. Especially that we should be diligent in using the means of grace, not just using them but being diligent in it. And that we would be diligent in resisting and repenting of our sins, not just resisting and repenting but being diligent to do so rather than allowing our sins to become besetting sins and undermining us further and further. Lord, as we use the means of grace, will you enable us to focus us on the promises, the promises of your word that are centred upon the Lord Jesus Christ, his work and his saving benefits, and that we may focus even more on that than we do on our own lack of desert of any blessing, so that we may cling to him, rather than clinging to our misery.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing now from Psalm 69, which we read, a psalm of assurance. Number 127, stanzas 1 to 4. We will stand to sing it. And would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology. 127, stanzas 1 to 4. our doxology we sing number 308 stanzas 1 and 3 the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all Amen